0: All right, so John 6 1 to 21, God's word says this. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias, and a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand, so it's Passover season. Lifting up his eyes, that's Jesus, then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, one of his disciples, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, that is to test Philip, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them just to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish, as much as they wanted And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. This is the word of the Lord. Chapter 6 now begins a new uh, discourse in John's Gospel. In this section, we'll understand Jesus' connection with the festival of Passover. Do you notice at the beginning of the passage, it noted that it was, it was Passover time. John purposefully, I believe, throughout his gospel, connects the ministry of Jesus to a few of the Jewish observances. Coming out of chapter 5, we had been in chapter 5 for about a month, uh, he was connected to what? The, the observance of the Sabbath. Okay, And, and Jesus, in a sense, kind of got himself into some hot water with the religious leaders because he healed a lame man on the Sabbath. Chapter 6 now is Passover time. Connecting chapters 5 and 6, it's one continuous narrative. Jesus uh, referred to last week, if you remember, we talked a little bit about Moses, didn't we? Jesus was connected with Moses. Jesus referred to the books of Moses and his connection as the prophet or one who comes after Moses. If if you'll notice, it says in verse 15 here, perceiving then that they were about to uh, come and take him by force and make him king. Why? Because just before that, it says that they thought that he was indeed the prophet, and he is. He is the prophet coming that fulfills uh, the prophecy spoke in Deuteronomy 18.15 of this greater prophet that would follow after Moses. Moses, And so in the coming weeks, we're going to be working under this subheading of this, the greater Moses. We're going to see how Jesus is the greater Moses and how he is the ultimate fulfillment of things that occurred in the Exodus narrative that we'll kind of be bouncing back and forth from. Which brings us to our main idea this morning. Our main idea is this, Jesus is the greater Moses who meets our every need. Jesus is the greater Moses who meets our every need. The roadmap, just so you know, we're going through chapter 6, and then we're actually going to take a break from the Gospel of John for the rest of the year. Uh, Just to kind of give you a pathway of where we're heading, we're we're going to do two weeks in uh, the epistle of Jude uh, towards the end of August into September. Then in in, uh, September, we're going to go through the minor prophet Habakkuk. Anybody ever done a study in Habakkuk? I can barely even pronounce it, but what's awesome is Habakkuk deals with the problem of evil, uh, which is something that many of us face questioning, is why would God allow evil and things like that? So we're going to deal with that. Uh, then we're going to do a little topical series on uh, life in the Spirit, in the Holy Spirit, and then later in the year we're going to circle to Peter's writings in Second Peter, so you know kind of the pathway going forward. So we've got four more weeks in the Gospel of John, and we're going to be working under this heading of Jesus as the Greater. Moses. We're going to see in the next four weeks that Jesus, and we see in this present passage, that he supplies, he He fills our physical needs. We see Jesus fill a physical need here. He feeds the hungry. Jesus fills our spiritual needs. We're going to see that. But in the end, if you know John chapter 6, there's kind of a heartbreaking section at the end of 6 where many of these people that Jesus feeds right here in this passage, they walk away from him because they find his teaching. They say too difficult or too hard. And so we're going to be working through six over the next uh, four weeks, chapter six through the next four weeks, uh, and and concluding with that, the many will choose not to follow after Jesus. But today, we zero in and we look to God as our provision for physical needs. Remember, we're looking at Jesus as the greater Moses who meets our every need. The author of Hebrews actually hits on this. If you look to the screens, Hebrews 3.3, he says this, For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. So the author of Hebrews himself, in a sense, says Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is the greater Moses. In this present passage, we witness God's physical provision for people. Just as he provided, if we reflect back on the Israelites in the Exodus account, in the wilderness, they were wandering and they were hungry and God supplied what to them? He supplied manna in the wilderness, right? Bread from heaven in a sense. Bread that came down. In this passage, we see Jesus' heart is moved by the crowd to provide for their hungry and to give them what? He gives them bread, we look at John 6 verse 11. It says, Jesus then took the loaves. So these are the barley loaves from the, from the young boy. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish. And, and look at this. As much as they wanted. So in abundance, Jesus fulfilled their need. He filled their hunger. The beauty of Jesus's provision is it is it doesn't just take the edge off their hunger but they ate as much as they wanted they ate their fill. The Lord blesses and he does so in abundance to those who are in need. Okay, a note of context, the f- the food provided, we know this is probably a poor crowd because the boy, the young child, that's all he had was he always these minimal provisions, just small uh, loaves of bread that were made out of barley which was poor people's food at the time, and probably two small fish. I think we can think of uh, like little sardines that he would probably put on the bread just for a little bit of flavor and to fill them up, get a little bit of protein in him. So this is likely a poor crowd uh, with barley bread. And Jesus takes these meager provisions, okay, five loaves, a couple fish, and he feeds. It says five thousand men. Okay, and it's safe to conclude uh, in works like older works in antiquity, they would have just accounted for the men. But if we added in women and children, it could be that this crowd was actually ten to fifteen thousand people that Jesus fed uh, with this little boy's what lunchable, right? With his lunchable that he brought. Jesus multiplied it. Just as God provided, reflecting back and forth to Exodus, just as God provided manna in the wilderness for his people daily, here the greater Moses, Jesus, provides bread in abundance for the crowd. Uh, and it didn't matter if they, if they were truly followers of him or not, because if we reflect on the end of John 6, many of them will depart Jesus. It says many of the disciples, okay, this isn't the inner twelve, but many of the disciples... They found his teachings too difficult, and they left. I would think Jesus kind of knew that was coming, but he still fed them, didn't he? He still met their need, and it's because God normally operates and cares for humanity. Humanity are his image bearers in his creation, the pinnacle of his creation. When God created man and woman, he called it very good. And so within that, we see, our first point this morning, we see God operating in common grace. God operates in common grace. Now in Scripture, we see God operate primarily in two modes of grace. Okay? We, see, we understand, as followers of Jesus, we understand saving grace, that which salvation comes through. And then we see God also operate in in common grace, that people that are still in their sin aren't just like burned up instantly and not provided for. People wake up that are outside of Christ, and they still have air to breathe, don't they? They still have food to eat. They still contribute to society. We would call that God's common grace that's available to each and every human person in the daily sustaining and flourishing of society their lives. Theologian Wayne Grudem says this of common grace. He says, common grace is the grace of God by which he gives people innumerable blessings that are not part of salvation. And so we see, in a sense, Jesus' common grace on this crowd that he feeds everybody there, not just the ones that will ultimately follow after him. Says this in verse 10 to 13, Jesus said, have the people sit down Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, about 5,000 in number, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, again, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told the disciples, so now there's leftovers. This is amazing. Just five loaves and two fish, and there's, everybody ate their fill, and there's leftovers. He says, gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments for the five, from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten surely this is a miracle and a sign right many scholars throughout history try to explain this away but jesus multiplied what this boy had to feed the multitudes that's what has occurred here a sign that he is the messiah jesus fills our need and does so in abundance i'm not going to shy away from that truth that's evident in this passage that jesus hears your need and he fills those God's grace is so expansive that He meets people's needs. We see the heart of Christ in His grace for this crowd. That his compassion on them. He, he could have run away. He could have shied away at the possibility that this could derail the redemptive plan. That they, It says at the end that they tried to take Him by force and make Him king. But instead, He calms the crowd... He seats them and out of an abundance of compassion, he meets their physical need. And he, again, gives evidence that he is God in the flesh. Only God could do something like this. And so the question is, I love to draw application out of these things. Like, What do we do with this, seeing Jesus feed the multitudes? We ask this question, family, as the body of Christ, so as the the burning and shining lamp of Jesus in our community here at North Bullitt Christian Church, are we doing as Jesus did here? Are we helping people to eat and filling their need? We're called as, as followers of Jesus to meet the needs of those around us. We must do this. We must feed the hungry, even more so in this time frame. If you, I watched the news last week, and they're saying like food banks are running out of food. There's, there's stores you go in, it's like the shelves are starting to empty out. There's something going on, right? And so we must feed the hungry as the local church. We must house the poor. We must train the jobless. We are the hands and feet of Jesus in our community. And God's common grace and goodness must be a burning and shining lamp through our church. My hope and prayer is that North Bullet Christian Church will be a burning and shining lamp uh, through the gospel of Jesus, through meeting felt needs in our community. And I believe it is. I mean, there's, there's many organizations, Christian organizations, in Bullock County, that meet the needs of the poor. We've had Perry here a number of times. He's the director of Mark 12 Ministries out of Mercy Hill Baptist Church in Shepherdsville, and they house homeless folks during the wintertime when it's bitter cold outside, giving them food. There's food ministries that dot the landscape of our community. And churches all across Bullock County this coming weekend, including ours, are going to give away food and school supplies to those in need, meeting a need in our community. It's something that we're passionate about, that through meeting felt needs, we may be able to share the good news about Jesus Christ with the lost. And when we act in this manner, we act like Jesus did. Right here, when He fed the multitudes. This is the core of who we are as a local church. It should be the natural response of a Spirit-empowered believer that we would, out of the generosity of, that God has showered on us through His grace, that we would too be generous to those in need. That, that we're driven to meet the needs of people near us, irregardless of their relationship with Christ. Every time someone comes to receive food from our food ministry, we don't ask them if they're a Christian or not. We just gladly feed them and give them food. And we're thankful for the opportunity. One of our core values as a church is this, is that we're mission-minded. We're mindful of the mission that Christ has given us. And this is one aspect of it, that we would meet the felt needs of our community and share the love of Jesus with them. Here's an immediate need that we have right here and right now. First off, I haven't done this, and and I'm going to embarrass somebody in here, but they need to be recognized. There's a gal in our church, Jana Miller, who has, probably for the last decade plus, has spent time helping feed those in need. Jana's a mature lady and her her body's, it's not able to keep up with doing that task anymore and we need to raise up a new leader to help in that area. But, Jana has, has done something that's commendable, that's amazing. She has dedicated her life to serving those in need in our community and feeding them. And I want to thank her this morning, and I'd ask that you guys would give her a round of applause for all that she has done. (laughs) Jana Miller, we are so thankful for your ministry and your commitment to those in need in our community. Thank you for all that you have done for them. Now, Just as in a relay race, the baton baton has to be passed on, doesn't it? And so we have people that are volunteering to help, but we need that next person to rise up to step into Jana's shoes and to take that ministry on and, and to run the race that God has set before us that we may meet those needs. And our prayer is that, God, the Lord will raise somebody up like that in our church to continue that, to be able to feed people in our community. And so that's one way that we can do that here. We have a food pantry here. We need someone to lead it. We have volunteers that are willing to step in underneath that. So I feel like the Lord's stirring in someone's heart this morning that call. The next thing that we learn in this passage is point number two we see tested faith. We see tested faith. Here's the truth of the matter. We've hit on this theme a few times in the Gospel of John. In the Christian life, we will face tests of our faith. Our faith will be tested. Okay, I don't don't want to sugarcoat things for you. There's many churches that will tickle your ears and say, hey, once you believe upon Jesus, everything's going to be good. Your bills are going to be paid. Everything's going to be fine. Your health's going to be great. Life's going to be amazing and out of this world. No, in the present time, in the time that we live in right now, you're going to face challenges and trials, and the Lord is in those things. And and sometimes they are tests of your faith to strengthen your faith. Just like uh, there, there's a lot of young men that weightlift. Okay, they get in the gym and they weightlift. And what happens when you lift weights is your muscles are actually torn apart in the process. And then physiologically, they through that stress, we call it resistance training. Through that resistance and the breaking down of your muscles, they rebuild themselves. And what happens? They get bigger and they get stronger. It's the same thing. The Lord does some resistance training with our faith. He applies pressure to it. And those muscles of faith, in a sense, are kind of pulled apart and shredded. Anybody felt that pain before, right? When your faith is stretched and it's pulled apart and it's torn apart, but then it's built back up by God's power and the work of His Spirit and the love of other Christians and our faith is strengthened, just like our muscles are built up when we weightlift. God will apply pressure to, to our circumstances in order to grow this, our trust in Him. When we say faith, we mean trust, that we would trust the Lord. I want to remind you, before we read this passage, when we, where we look at Jesus testing the faith of Philip and Andrew, and really the other disciples, this is what they've witnessed so far. They've witnessed Jesus do this, His first miracle, to change water into wine. They've witnessed him heal the official's son. They've witnessed him uh, just recently heal a lame man at the pool. And we could conclude now from afar, from where we're at, that there's sufficient evidence to trust that Jesus is going to provide for the multitudes in this situation. But let's read what happens, verses 5 to 9. Lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a, a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? And it says clearly, he said this, what to test him for, he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him 200 denaria. Okay. That's, let's give some context here. That's 200 days of wages. Okay. The, the average household income in the U S right now, that would be 200 days of wages could be 35 to $40,000. So we think in equivalence here. 200 days of wages worth of bread. And he said, that would not even be enough for each of them to just get a little. So you see the complexity of this problem. It goes further. One of his disciples, Andrew, that's Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a little boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. And then he questions also, but what are they for so many? Again, we see a, a pushing back against are they going to believe and trust that Jesus is going to provide? Philip and, and Andrew both convey statements of distrust. I mean, Philip is just straight up like, but we can't fix this problem. In and Andrew, I kind of get a tension there where he's like, I brought this boy, but he's only got five loaves and two fish. I don't know what you can do with this, but here you go. Right? One's saying we don't have enough money to buy food. The other is saying we just don't have enough food to feed them. After the three incidents that they have been eyewitnesses, they continue to exhibit kind of this shaky faith, but Jesus is faithful and he's going to show them. The other thing is I was thinking about this passage this morning and thinking through... what they had seen, how they had seen Jesus' work up until this point that's noted in John's gospel. John makes an interesting statement at the very end of his gospel in John chapter 21. He tells us this about the signs of Jesus. He says, Jesus did even more than what I have listed here. He said, "The, the books in the world can't even contain everything he did. So it's likely that they've seen way more than just these three instances, and yet they still don't have enough trust, enough faith, That Jesus is going to provide. They have sufficient evidence for trust. Now they just they just need to walk in the faith that God has given them. And yet they they question and struggle to believe. But Jesus is still He's gracious to them in their distrust, and He continues to move forward with feeding the multitudes and does indeed feed them, doesn't he? He multiplies what they have and he feeds the crowd. And so we're brought back now to look at our own lives and ask these questions. How many times, family, how many times has the Lord shown up in your life? How many times has he moved uh, to bless you, to be there in your time of need? How often do you forget about the amazing ways that Jesus has come through in your life? And spiral into doubt in the next season of difficulty. See, they've seen Jesus move, and yet here again, it's it's only a miraculous act that these people could be fed, and they are are not trusting, they're not, their faith is not fully there yet. We have to ask this question then when we think and reflect back on our walk with Christ, like, do I trust the Lord? In those times of questioning, am I gonna trust him? I'm not not promising you that He's going to act in accordance to what your will and desire is. He's going to act in accordance to His will. And His will is perfect. But I will say this, the Lord always comes through. He always is there. He always is there to embrace you and hold you and to, to walk you through this, through the most challenging seasons of life. The Lord is there. Economic stress, job changes, family strife, relational issues. I know that there are many in our church here this morning that that are on that that point of despair in their life. The Lord is there for you. He's there with you, comforting you. Providing as He sees fit. Three simple words. Trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. He will work and provide. Our job is to do this. It's to walk in obedience to Him. Perhaps the the proper response to Jesus in this situation from these two men would have been this. I echo the words from, from another gospel, a desperate father. He says this. I love when he says this. He says, Lord, I believe. And then what does he say? Help my unbelief, right? Have you been there before? Jesus, I trust you. Help me where I don't trust you. Lord, I believe. Help where I just don't. I'm just struggling to keep taking that next step. I think we all can pray this prayer at times. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Moreover, it's something that we can do. We can respond to the Lord by thanking him when he tests our faith. It shows his deep love for us when he applies resistance to your life and strengthens and grows your faith. It's nothing anybody wants to go through, right? Like, I don't like going through a test of faith. But God's grace is evident when He does those things. Because he's growing you and He's strengthening you for what He has you for. We thank the Lord when He does that. He cares for you. Paul says this, and he had a struggle his whole life. We don't know what that was. But he concludes with this in Second Corinthians, he says, In in my weakness or he says, When I am weak, then I am strong. You guys re- recall that verse? For when I'm weak, I am strong. Because here's the truth in our weakness, when we're humbled, when we're desperate, when we have no ability or way out, that's when we see the power of Jesus at work. Will you trust Him? We see it magnified when we're desperate. And so we have this question I, I want you to think about this week in, in your time of devotion and prayer. Where have you seen Jesus move in your life when there were no other options? When have you seen the Lord just bless you in ways that none of us deserve? There's no way out. Would you take time this week to praise and honor Him for that? Remember the times when He comes through for you. Remember the times when you feel the presence of God there with you in the storm. One way I can think of God working powerfully is looking back. Again, we're connecting this to Moses. Looking back to the work of Moses and the Israelites. The history of that nation of people is that they were under enslavement in Egypt. But they were set free by the Egyptians after, after an event, a crucial event, the Passover. And this is Passover season here that Jesus is celebrating the Passover. So they're set free after the Passover event, and yet, once again, we're told that Pharaoh's heart was hardened towards the Lord and His people, and he began, he began to pursue them to the point of hopelessness. The Israelites stood at the banks of of a vast sea. There was no way out. They were boxed in. The army was behind them. What did Moses do? He lifted his staff, and what happened? The waters parted, and God's people walked across as on dry land. And the pursuing army, as they went across, it came in behind them. And as soon as they made it across to safety, what happened? swollen up. The Lord provided a way through Moses. I want to make this connection now to this present story. In an instance reminiscent of this event, the greater Moses and true king, here we see him walking on top of water. Jesus walks on water to his disciples. It brings us to our concluding point. Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the true king. But Jesus isn't just king because he meets people's needs, right? They wanted to take him by force and make him king. He's not, Jesus isn't just some ordinary earthly ruler. He is the king of kings and lord of lords. He's overall. It says this in verses 15 to 21, it says, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Why? I want to pause here for a second, because now is not the time. It's not the time for him to be crowned king shows with his actions, his act of going off in solitude and running away, that his kingdom is actually a lot greater than just this little earthly province that he's working in. His kingdom is out of this world. He would say it's not of this world. And it says this, looking on, when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat. They started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw... This is crazy, isn't it? They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Man, that fly will not leave me alone. But he said to them... I, I want you guys to hold on to this phrase right here. This is, listen to what Jesus says. He says, it is I... what? Do not be afraid. Would you say that with me? It is I. Do not be afraid. Man, could we hold on to that? Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. You see, the greater Moses doesn't need to part the sea, but instead he walks upon its cresting waves. It's a storm. The waves are high. The other gospels note the severity of the storm and perhaps this maybe was the occasion where Peter's faith was tested as well and he sunk into the waves. But regardless of these details being absent from this account, Jesus shows that he truly is king and Lord of all when he walks on top of the water. Where Moses was dependent on the, upon the power of God to part the sea, the greater Moses is in control of all that he created. You see, Jesus spoke these things into existence. He was there at the beginning when it says in the Genesis account that the expanse above and the expanse below were separated out through his spoken words. Jesus told the water where to go. That's why he can walk on top of it. And he's the one now who comes to the disciples walking upon the wavetops. Unfortunately, the crowd, looking back to the crowd that he had fed in their desperation to take power back from earthly authorities, they hated their, their Roman overseers. They were captive in a sense, in that land. They desired them to make this, this bread provider an earthly king, but Jesus This is a point of his perfection. In his perfection would not submit to their human desires. He would not submit to the temptation to take the easy way to the throne. To be thrust up high on their shoulders... Recall back to when Jesus is is tempted in the wilderness. What was one of the temptations that Satan set before him? That if he would just bow down on his feet, he he would give him authority over all the things on the earth. He would make him a ruler. And Jesus is like, yeah, no thank you. I'm over all this already. Jesus knew the pathway to the throne. And in God's kingdom and in the life of Jesus, we find that that pathway can at times be difficult. Jesus had a difficult path, didn't He? Jesus can empathize with your difficult path in life. In this passage, He shows us that He is the greater Moses who meets the needs of the people. He feeds them. Just as God provided manna in the wilderness, Jesus provided bread for the multitudes. Just as Moses parted the seas through God's power, Jesus is God in the flesh striding across the wavetops. And in perfect obedience to the eternal plan of the Father, Jesus did not allow the rush of human affirmation and desire to derail his mission to do this, to redeem a people unto himself. because he had to walk the pathway towards his crowning moment, and his crowning moment was a devastating one to his human body. It cost him his life. Jesus was nailed to the cross, and he shed his blood, but on the third day, family, he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death. We must constantly... Look to that peak moment of Jesus' ministry when He breathed His last and He gave up His life on the cross for you and for me. The moment when He trusted, right? He asked the Lord, if you can, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. He walked in obedience to the Father to go forth as the ultimate sacrifice the spotless Lamb of God who who takes away the sin of the world, is what John the Baptist said. And all of this, looking back now to Moses, was foreshadowed in the Passover event. It's Passover time. They're celebrating that. The Passover event does this. it, It pictures what Jesus ultimately accomplished at the cross. The Israelites were were enslaved and God, in His grace, He had compassion on them. He heard their cries. He provided a way out, didn't He? He saved them. He did this through the sacrifice of a perfect lamb and the covering of their doorposts with the lamb's blood. And His wrath literally passed over those who were under the blood of the lamb. And it led to their deliverance. Jesus is pictured in that event. Jesus is that perfect Lamb of God. And He shed His perfect blood for us. Those who are in Christ, His blood covers over us so that we call this, we call this atonement. Our sin is atoned for. It's taken care of. The penalty that we deserve to pay was paid for by Jesus at the cross. And through the blood of Christ covering over us in the same way, God's wrath passes over us. It was poured out on Jesus when he gave up his life. This is the true benevolent king who provides and cares for you. Hear this. Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He cares for you. I ask you this question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you trust in Him? And out of the trust that we have in His finished work at the cross, are we then looking back on His work of common grace, of, of being on mission, on showing people His provision and His love, are you willing now also to carry out that work? To meet the needs of those who are both in Christ and those who don't yet know Jesus? to feed and care for those who are poor and in need, to show the love of Jesus to each and every human person that we encounter here as a local church. Are you ready for that work, family? Do you believe and trust in Jesus? Are you willing to obey his word and the actions of his life?